If you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 6. You've heard it said, in fact, some of you have probably used this term at particular times, that God works in mysterious ways. In other words, we might say it this way, that God is providential. In other words, he gives divine guidance with his hand. After my freshman year of Bible college, many of my friends went to Michigan to serve as counselors at a Christian camp. I went home worked all summer because I had to pay for my, for my education. When I returned that August to school, one of my friends who worked at that camp that summer told me about this girl that he met. Now, the girl sounded, to be honest with you, really incredible, but I didn't know her. She lived in Pennsylvania, and there were many other girls right there on my campus. For me to be concerned with a girl in Pennsylvania wasn't really on my agenda. And so, fast forward to my senior year in college, that same friend who told me about this girl three years earlier asked me to pray for him because spring break, he was going to go visit this girl. He had this idea in his mind that if he could just spend some time with her and she with him, that somehow she would be convinced that he was the one. Guys, have you ever been there? You remember when you were in the dating game or if you're there currently? You just kind of think eventually you could sell yourself to her. And so he flies out to Pennsylvania, and that's his agenda at spring break. He's going to convince this girl that he's the one for her. And I was his, uh, his resident advisor, and so I was obligated by contract to pray with him, and so I did that. He came back after that week, and she didn't fall for it. In fact, he was uh, as single as ever, and now rather than just asking him to pray for him and with him, he, he wanted, and I know this is really bad, all right? This is, the guy wanted me to sing a song with him and record it, And he wanted to send it to this girl in Pennsylvania. Again, I remind you that I was under contract, right? I had to minister to these guys, whatever it took, whatever it meant at any time of the day. And so I sang with him and we sent her the cassette tape and she fell in love with him because of my... No, actually, that didn't didn't happen. In fact, I don't really think there was ever any response from the cassette tape, actually. We graduated a few weeks later and I got a job. Several months later, at the end of the summer, I got a job as a youth pastor in Akron, Ohio. And only weeks after I got there, I met this other youth pastor and his wife. And not too long after that, the girl that I was dating told me that it was not God's will for us to be together. Contrary to what God had told me, he told her something else. I've talked to you about that, right? That's a problem, right? And so here I am, I'm out of school, I am in a church, and it's a small church, and I'm a youth pastor, and... I remember sitting in my apartment going, okay, you have really messed up now. You had opportunities before, you're too picky, you were too, and now you have really messed up. God has now bestowed upon you the gift of singleness, and you might as well just consume yourself with ministry to high school kids because that's what you're going to be doing. One night while talking with my youth pastor friend and his wife, they told me about this incredible girl that they knew who was single. And as they talk, I, I listened and, and I asked questions about this particular girl. And, and so I started saying, is her name Diana? And they said, yeah. How, how do you know that? And I said, well, was her dad a Bible college professor? And they said, yeah, her dad was a Bible college professor. And I said, okay, she didn't work at Lake Ann Camp in Michigan after her freshman year of college, did she? And they said, yes. How do you know this? And I said, well, she doesn't know me, but she's heard me sing. I know this girl. 
In October of 1988, I went with this couple to New Jersey for a weekend for them to visit their friend Diana. Actually, they, uh, they took me with them, I think, because I had a new car and they were poor married people. And let's just say that I saw her and she saw me and immediately <laughs> she knew. Well, immediately let's say that I knew that she was the one for me. Now, I'm, I'm here to tell you, when I talk about the providence of God, that only God can do those kind of things. Some of you have similar stories, by the way. Maybe not in the way that you met your spouse or, or something like that, but you have similar stories where you've seen God work, you've seen God do something, and you know that those things don't happen by chance, that God causes those things to happen. Things don't just happen like that. And there's the story of God's providential hand providing a girl for me in a, that was way out of my league, I, I might add, all God's people said. Thank you, I'll just get that out of the way right there. God used his providential plan so that I might have an incredible wife and that you might have the blessing of an incredible pastor's wife here at Northwest. If you say to me that that's just coincidence, I say you are so, so wrong. If you say to me that that's just lucky, that's by chance, I say to you that's so wrong. You see what the world sees as coincidence, followers of Jesus, we call that providence. And that's what we're going to see in Esther chapter 6 today. You see, sometimes God works through his visible hand of miracles, and, and sometimes God works through his invisible hand of providence. And that's really one of the great themes of the book of Esther. If you remember back to chapter 1 when we did our introduction, I told you that God's name is never mentioned, not even once. Angels don't appear, prophets don't come and speak. It appears as if God is totally silent in this book. And yet God is working through his providential plan. And we don't see the invisible hand of God, but we see the effects of God's invisible hand. In fact, it's much like wind. I don't know if you've ever gone outside after a terrible storm and, and you see the effects of the wind. Maybe you see a tree that is, has gone over or you see your trash cans are over in your neighbor's yard and you go, well, I know the trash can doesn't have legs and didn't just get up and walk. You saw the effects of the wind and that's the way it is with God. I believe with all of my heart in my life, in our life together as a community of faith here at Northwest Community Church that God is constantly at work in each of our lives for his glory and for our good. I firmly believe that. Now normally, I give you the big idea right at the end of my message and I'm gonna do it right up front today. The big idea is this, don't question the providence of God, assume it. Don't question the providence of God, but assume it. You see, most of the time in our lives, see if you find this to be true in your life, we don't see burning bushes like Moses saw. Wouldn't you like that? I'd love to go outside and if God has something to say to me, go, well, there's a bush on fire, but it's not being consumed. God, what do you have to say to me? I think that'd be great. That'd be awesome. That would be easy, right? God normally doesn't speak in that way. He normally doesn't split water and go, hey, I want you to walk across on dry ground. I just split the Red Sea. He doesn't do that in my life. Most of the time, water doesn't just start coming from a rock. God doesn't do most of the time in my life what he did for Moses. But nevertheless, I see the effects of God's presence and I can safely assume that it's God's providence. 
Yet the typical response is, wow, look what happened. Boy, was I lucky. What a coincidence. And I want to tell you this morning that that is wrong. God is behind every single little event in our lives. Every single thing that's happening to you, that's happening to you right now, that happened to you last week, that will happen to you as we get into this new week, God's hand of providence is evident in your life. And so I want to give you two ironies of life. Number one, I do good and blessings never seem to come. You ever found that to be true? You do a lot of good stuff, and depending on what churches you've been to and what preachers you've been listening to, they told you that if you did good, God will bless you, right? And so you think, well, I'm just going to try it. And so you do good, and yet blessing never seems to come. At this point in our story, our friend Mordecai, humanly speaking, might be justified in having an attitude of skepticism about the providence of God. I mean, think about it. There's been an edict to eradicate 15 million Jews. The king is a Gentile. He has no interest in Jews. In fact, his number two guy is very anti-Semitic, down to the soles of his sandal, that wicked man Haman. Esther's the queen, but the king doesn't know that she's a Jew. And if he did know that she was a Jew, he might kill her too. And it would appear as if everything is hopeless. And yet we get no idea that Mordecai is sitting in the corner scared for his own life, having a pity party. That's where some of us might be today. I don't know exactly what's going on in your life right at this particular moment or what's happened in your life this last week or this last month. We might have every reason, though, to doubt the sovereign providential hand of God. In fact, have you noticed that sometimes God seems very silent in the midst of our deepest fears and our anxieties? I'm reminded when the book of Malachi ends and then God is silent For not just four weeks, but 400 years, he's silent. Why would he allow you then to lose your job? Why would cancer invade your body? Why does he allow bad things to happen in your life or in the life of those you love? And you ask the question, where is God now that I need him the most? We dealt with some of those questions and some of those issues back in our series in January. If the book of Esther teaches us anything, it shows us that God is always working in every detail of our lives, whether we specifically see his hand at any given moment. I want you to remember that today, that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what terrible, horrific news you've received in the last week, in the last month, in the last six months, or you will receive from this point forward that God is working all of those things for your good and for his glory. Life principle number one is this, when all seems lost, it's usually not. When all seems lost, it's usually not. Now we would do well to remember that that principle on this journey that you and I call life. When you think that your situation is hopeless, and I know because I do life with you, many of you I interact with on a weekly basis, when you think that your situation is hopeless and not even God can intervene and change things, that's when he often finds the greatest time to bring glory for himself. You see, when we think we can go about and we can do all of our things and we can use all of our human abilities I think God just kind of steps back and goes, you, you go down that road. It's kind of the Dr. Philism. How's that going for you, right? 
And then when we get to the point where we go, well, I've exhausted all of my options. In fact, I've said it before, and you've probably said it too. Well, I guess all we can do now is what? Pray. Now that we've done everything that we can do and we've tried to do our best, I guess, I guess now all that we've done, now we'll just pray, right? Now we'll just go to the God of the universe, the sovereign one, the one who holds the globe in his hand. Now we'll go to him now that we've tried to do everything that we can do, and we'll just see maybe by chance maybe he can do something. Romans 8, 28, we read a lot, but we don't normally read 26 and 27. Look what Romans 8 says. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then verse 28 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Look with me at verse 1. In Esther chapter 6, look at that first phrase there. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, I don't want you to miss, as we work through this text in the next few minutes, I don't want you to miss God's providential hand in this passage. Notice right off, second word, during that night. It could have, the writer could have said anything. He could have said during the night, during a night, No, during that particular night, the king couldn't sleep. Now, if I was a king, I probably would not sleep well either. The king had a lot to be concerned about. He had a lot of wives. I mean, at any given moment, there were lots of things going on in his lives. The night before Haman, though, would come to him and ask him for permission to put Mordecai on a 75-foot-tall gallows. It's that night that the king can't sleep. You say coincidence, I say providence. And why does he choose to have the book of records read to him? Now, commentators have speculated about this, and they speculate that that was probably the most boring thing that he could think of to have read to him. Have you ever done that? You're not able to sleep? I get up, go downstairs, turn on the TV, and watch infomercials. And just like that, I am, although from time to time I get interested in those things, and I start dialing numbers too, right? So don't don't necessarily do that, or you could end up with a bunch of things you really don't want when you're awake. But you think about it. He had a harem. He could have called any number of women into him. He certainly had musicians. He undoubtedly had a royal refrigerator. That's where I go to too, right? I mean, that's awesome. You go into the royal refrigerator and there's all kinds of things there that will make you get to sleep faster. Why would he read the book of records? I say to you again, it was providence. And why is this particular book, when historians assume that there were just volumes of these records, Why would he read those books? I'd say it's God's providence. Now, the book of the Chronicles was the official record of the Persian kings. Every official transaction was written down in these books. And from these official transcripts, the king would draw up a list of those who were to be rewarded for faithful service to him, to the throne. Look at verse 2. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigtha and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers that they had sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus. If you remember back from our study in Esther chapter 2, in those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry, and they sought to lay hands on the king. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Esther, and Esther told the king. And as a result of that, both of them were hung on a gallows, and it's written in the Chronicles, verse 23 of chapter 2 says. There's providence again. 
all the books that that servant could have chosen, and he chooses this book, and he reads about this guy named Mordecai. Mordecai is about ready to be hung on a 75-foot-tall gallows by Xerxes' right-hand man, Haman. And instead, the king can't sleep that night. And rather than a nice big bowl of ice cream, he says to his servant, hey, go get the Chronicles and read to me. Read to me what's gone on. And he chooses that particular volume, and the king starts listening, and he goes, hey, what, that guy, that guy, that name, Mordecai, what did we ever do for that guy? That's not coincidence. That's the Lord. See, he's always at work, and he is weaving the tapestry of our lives together for his glory and for our good. Have you ever noticed in your life that it is the simplest, most minute details that have a whole situation come together like it should? And if that simple, minute detail doesn't work out just like it should, that somehow this doesn't happen over here, that's the case here. He chooses any other book... And Mordecai's name's not there. Haman comes in in the morning, and the guy's hung on a 75-foot gallows. He chooses that book. Mordecai's name is read, and the king goes, What have we done for him? The king said, verse 3, What honor of dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. Now here's what you need to understand from the historical record. It was important for Persian kings to publicly reward those who had been loyal as a means of promoting their own safety in what was a very treacherous time, right? He didn't have CIA agents walking around, you know, with earpieces, you know, black suits kind of watching over him. He was kind of obligated to the people that were around him, even the commoners, to kind of have a neighborhood watch program, so to speak. And so if somebody did an act of service like that to him, it was expected that they would be rewarded. In fact, the historian Herodotus Uh, records that there had been an assassination attempt actually on Xerxes' brother's life. Not Xerxes, but the brother's life. And as a result, those men who, who exposed that conspiracy to take his life, they were promoted and they were given governorships. Another time, Herodotus recalls a story when Xerxes granted land to the two ship captains who had assisted him in the battle against the Greeks. The king was very concerned then that nothing had been done. You can can imagine he's thinking maybe Mordecai's been out there and he's been telling his friends, look, I did this, I went to the the queen and I told her and I saved the king's life and nothing has been done for me. And the guys go, I'm not opening my mouth anymore. I'm not doing it. See, Mordecai, there's no doubt, had been keenly disappointed that he'd not been recognized by the king. Kind of speaks to his character, though, and his willingness to overlook the slight and continue in his faithful service to the king in spite of the lack of recognition, which brings us to life principle number two. When you think nobody notices or cares, someone always does. Someone always does. You might notice uh, I capitalize someone. Someone. It might not be a human being, but I can tell you this, that someone, God, always knows. Let me ask you this. How do you respond when things don't seem fair, when things don't go the way you think they ought to go in your life based upon the good that you've done? When you do good and you don't get what you deserve. You ever been at work and you've done something and and, uh, somebody else got the credit for it? I know it's never happened to you. It happened to me before. And I want to go, whoa, hey, that was my idea. You ever want to do that? You ever want to stand up in a meeting where there's a bunch of people sitting around there going, that was an awesome idea. 
and you're going, hello, it was me. I'm the one that came up with the idea. Were it not for me, that idea would not be on the table. Anybody else guilty of that? Great, you're not responding to me at all, which makes me feel about that tall. It makes me feel like I'm the only one that's ever thought this. You ever wondered why does somebody else get the credit for my work? Why don't I get the good that I deserve? How about when others who don't do good prosper? You ever had a problem with that? You ever looked around in your neighborhood and thought, that dirty, rotten scoundrel, look at that new car that he got. He doesn't deserve that. He gets home at 3 o'clock every afternoon, doesn't leave till 10. Here I am working 14. You've done it before. Notice how easily I can relate the story. I've had these thoughts in my head. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, he asked that question. He said this to God, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Let me tell you, if there ever was a seeker of justice that you've known in your life, if you know me, shake my hand, because I am a seeker of justice. If there's a prophet that I love, it's the prophet Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah is doing that. And he says to God, God, there's some matters of justice I'd like to discuss with you. Here's the important thing to remember if you're like me and you're a seeker of justice. I'm a seeker of justice not just for myself. I'm a seeker of justice for anybody that I know, any place in the world at any given moment. I can watch the world news, all right, and see somebody in the remotest part of the earth. And if I think they're being mistreated, I yell, that's unjust. Anybody else like that? That's the way we're wired, and that's the way Jeremiah was. And he said, God, I want to discuss some matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You've planted them. They've taken root. They grow. They produce fruit. You're near to their lips, but far from their mind. But you know me, O Lord. You see me, and you examine my heart's attitude towards you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter, he said. And set them apart for a day of carnage. You say, wow, I wish we had modern day prophets. We do. We do. How about that? Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for a day of carnage. We'll move on. Hebrews chapter 6. God says this, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name. Let me tell you, if you do what you do, and you do it in the name of Jesus for God's glory and, for not, and not for your own, God sees it. And even when you think that nobody sees it, someone always does. And I love that verse. The writer of Hebrews said, for God is not unjust to forget. God doesn't forget. I don't care what it is that you're doing that you think is so good and so right and so noble, and it probably is, and nobody is noticing, and so you go, well, I'm just going to stop doing it. Don't stop doing it. Do what you do for God's glory. Someone is taking notice. God does not forget. Here's irony number two. I do bad, and the consequences seem to never come. You ever been there in your life? It's kind of like what I said to you several months ago about my dieting habits sometimes. You know, you eat a few chocolate chip cookies, and then you go jump on the scale, and you go, I weigh the same that I weighed before the chocolate chip cookies. These must be the most awesome chocolate chip cookies ever because I didn't gain any weight. So you go downstairs, you have another, another couple. You go back up and you jump on the scale. Some of you are laughing because you've done this. And you jump on the scale and you go, it still didn't move. 
What a discovery I have. I can eat as many as I want, and the scale doesn't move. And then you wake up the next morning, get on the scale, and it moved. Right? Irony number two is I do what I want to do, and the consequences of sin never seem to come. This is where Haman is living. No doubt he's been thinking that he can do whatever he wants to do, that he's the number two guy, the the queen likes me, she even invited me to dinner and people bow down to me. I am the man. I do what I want to do. And the consequences of my evil decisions never seem to come. Or do they? Maybe that's where some of you are today. I I, I don't ever uh, take for granted that there aren't folks that are sitting here right this morning and that's the way you're living your life right now. You really have an arrogant attitude which says, I've been doing what I want to do in the way that I want to do it and I know it's contrary to biblical principle, but up until this time I've gotten away with it and that must just be the way it is for me. I must be the exception to the rule. I do whatever I want, and consequence seems to never come. Verse 4, so the king said, who's in the court? We haven't honored Mordecai. Who's in the court? (laughs) I love this next phrase. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. Yeah, he just happened to be there, right? It's God's providence again. He went in in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he'd prepared for him. Coincidence? Nope. There's the providential hand of God again. Verse 5, the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman standing in the court. And the king said, Awesome! That's their original text. If you, you probably got an English version, but if you had uh, Septuagint, you'd probably see that. It, and the king said, Let him come in. That's great. That's my number two guy. Bring him in. So Haman came into the king, and the king said to him, Now, now don't miss this, all right? What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Can you picture Haman at this particular moment? Haman's going, just when I think it can't get any better, just when I think I have attained to the highest level, now he's asking me, me, what can I do to honor you? Haman said to himself, I love the text there, he said to himself, it's one of those, self? Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? I mean, when you look around at all the losers that I interact with on a daily basis, who would the king want to honor besides me? Here's life principle number three. When everything seems great, it's usually not. You found that to be true? When everything seems great, it's usually not. Anytime that things appear to be going great, that you would really, you and I would really do well to look over our shoulder or around the corner, especially if you're living to please yourself and not Jesus. I warn you about that today. I warn myself as I studied this text this week that any time that you think things are going just so awesome and they can't get any better, you better look around the corner and you better watch out. Because when everything seems great, it's usually not. It's worth repeating from our study last week in chapter 5 when we discussed this issue of pride, that pride lies. You see, when we're proud, we believe things to be true about ourselves and others that are actually lies. Look at verse 7. Then Haman said to the king, King, I've got an idea. Here's what you should do for the the man whom the king desires to honor. Look at verse 8. Let them bring a royal robe. Not just a royal robe, but one of those robes that the king has worn. 
Kind of like the hockey jersey my friend Glenn Wesley gave me. He was going to give me just this jersey, you know, this replica jersey. And I'm like, I don't want that. I mean, I want one that you wore in a game that you shed blood on. That's the one that I want. I want the royal jersey, the game-worn jersey. Bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden. Not just some horse, not just some little white stallion out there. No, we want one that the king has actually put his royal behind on and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Let me go just a step further and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before all of him, Thus it shall be done to the man who the king desires to honor. You can just see him sit back going, I think that covers it, king. I think if you really want to do something for somebody that's really done something great for you, that's what you ought to do. Do you see the incredible arrogance in this man? He's not planning to honor somebody else. He's planning a parade for himself. (laughs) Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, (laughs) this really, if you don't think, by the way, that God has a sense of humor in his providential plan and how he works in lives, all right, if you walked in here today and you don't really know a lot about the Bible and you think that's a boring book, all right, this is going to change your mind, verse 10. Here's Haman going, that's what you ought to do for this man, me. And the king says to Haman, fantastic. Take quickly the robes and the horses as you've said and do so for Mordecai the Jew who's sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything. I love the plan just like you've described it. Go and do that for Mordecai. If we had video footage of this particular moment, (laughs) would it not be an incredible thing? It would have surpassed the greatest movie that you've ever seen for this true-to-life story to have been told. This is funny. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, you have never read Esther chapter 6. Can't you just speculate in heaven? God saying to the angels, come gather around, watch this. Watch this. Can't you see that? And they're all standing around going, oh, that was good. Man, that's awesome. This is one of those moments that you just have to savor. Life principle number four is this, when nothing seems just, it is. When nothing seems just, it is. Quickly, God had not ignored his arrogant attitude. When the prophet Jeremiah asked the question, God, do you see this? Do you know what's happening? God's not going, no, but thanks for reminding me. Thanks for pointing that out. God sees it. He knows exactly what's going on. He saw Haman's arrogant attitude, his prejudicial motives, his plans to murder Mordecai and the Jewish people. You see, God might have been invisible, but he was not out of touch or passive. Verse 11. (laughs) It gets better. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. The king basically says, hey, you're the number two guy. 
I love the fact that you said one of the noble princes should lead him. You're the man. You're the guy that should do this. Plus, you came up with a plan. Now, remember, the king doesn't know anything. He's forgotten that he used his, his signet ring to sign the edict that says we're going to exterminate 15 million Jews. This king is so out of touch, he doesn't even remember that. And he certainly doesn't know that Haman has come to see him that day so that he could ask to have this guy put up on a 75-foot gallows and murdered. He just says, you're the guy. Go and do it to this guy that wouldn't bow down to you. If that's not irony, I don't know what is. Now, I thought about this this week. This would be like some of my dear NC State fans. It would be like this. I'm not going to name you this morning, but it would be like, actually, I was going to name one of you, but I'm not, I'm not going to. It would be like, you putting on this t-shirt and running around the triangle declaring that, that UNC has the premier sports program in the ACC. They are a dynasty and you are in awe of that institution. Yeah, it won't happen. I can hear it right now. I would never do that. I, that would be horrible. That would be outrageous. That would be humiliation. Imagine the, the, the inner turmoil that that would cause you if you were put in that position. I know some of you say, I'd rather die than do that. How many of you say that? You do. You guys are sick individuals. I'd rather die than put on that T-shirt. I'd think that if he would have been given the benefit, Haman, of knowing what you and I know, about the end of the story and that he's going to die anyway, he probably would have just died rather than to have done this. And so here he is. He places the royal robe on Mordecai. He helps him get up on the finest horse. He grabs the rein. Can you picture it in your mind? He grabs the rein and he starts leading the stallion, the white horse, all the way through the town square. This is what the king does to those who honor him. One commentator said the words of Haman he had to proclaim must have seemed like gravel in his mouth at that particular moment. Here's something for you to remember. God's wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine, Chuck Swindoll says. You notice this, that God doesn't usually bring justice on our timetable. But when he does, it's very, very hard to miss his point. Look at verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home. <laughs> Remember in chapter 5 when he hurried home, he hurried home to tell them what a great and awesome guy he was and how powerful he was and how much the king loved him and the queen loved him and he gunned to dinner with them. He hurried home mourning with his head covered. He's just like this. He's going through the street just like this, just, just, just like that. Doesn't want anybody to see him. He's been totally humiliated. I've asked myself what I might have done if I were Mordecai. Perhaps this morning we have some modern-day Mordecais or Mordecaiettes. Perhaps you have been blessed, you've been elevated, you have finally been promoted to the place you believe you should have been all along. You have the salary that you think you should have had all along. People know who you are and they finally understand the contribution that you make to the organization. Anybody like that here this morning? Let me ask you this question. Has that elevation changed you? A noteworthy contrast between Haman and Mordecai emerges right here at this particular point. While the day's events were crushing to one, they seemed of little significance to the latter, to Mordecai. 
The author simply says here in Esther that Mordecai returned to his place of work right to the gate. He could have been proud. I think that's what I'd have done, don't you? Hey, one more time. One more round. Just one more time. Lead me around one more time. I think there's some new people in the square. (laughs) I want to be part of that. You're laughing because some of you would have done that. That's maybe what I would have done. Instead, the writer just says he returned right to the king's gate. He's truly a man at this particular moment of humility and a contrite heart. Look at verse 13. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you're hosed. That's what it says. You're dead. It's not good for you. These are the people, by the way, in chapter 5. You remember? Hey, here's what you ought to do. Go build a gallows 75 feet high and spear that guy and hang him up so that everybody can see him. And then go merrily to the king's banquet. Now all of a sudden they go, you shouldn't listen to us. (laughs) That wasn't so smart because if he is a Jew, you're in big trouble. Now, we don't know why she knows that, why she puts all that together. We don't know if they just have a knowledge of the Jews being God's people and they just assume that bad things are going to happen. But this was the moment, I believe, that Haman needed to recognize his horrible pride and his destructive behavior. This was his last opportunity. I want to close this morning... And I've wrestled with this all week long about this text and how we would would close our study this morning. Is it possible that you're here this morning? I think it is. Obviously, that's why I'm going to say this. And this is your last opportunity. You see, everybody around you thinks you have it all together. You've been maybe successful in the world's eyes, in their eyes, maybe even in the eyes of your, your family. And yet you know deep down within your heart, deep down within your spirit, where only you go and God goes. You know that things really aren't as they should be. Mordecai has been elevated. Haman has to know what's coming down the pike, right? He has to know, he has to remember that this 75-foot gallows, he has had built. He ordered the building of it, even without the king's approval. He has to know what's coming, and he gets one last opportunity. One last opportunity. I can't help but wonder. We know the end of the story, but I can't help but wonder, had he gone to the king and say, hey, king, I have messed up. I blew it. I got mad. This guy wouldn't bow, blah, blah, blah. I had you do this. You know, we ought to forget that. That's just wrong. Probably the king might have shown grace, might have shown mercy. Certainly we know this morning the one whom we answer to, which is not King Xerxes. As powerful as he thinks he might be, he finds himself nowhere except in the hand of an almighty, sovereign, providential God. The difference is that if you and I come to the one who we answer to, we find grace and we find mercy. And I can't help but wonder if for some of us this morning, maybe God's message to you today isn't, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you one more opportunity. Listen to me. Payday always comes. You found that to be true? It might seem to you at this particular moment that you're doing exactly what you want to do, living your life just the way you want to live it. You might be a follower of Jesus, but you don't live that way. And here's the problem. You've been doing your thing for so long 
that in your pride you actually believe that you can do what you want to do and there's going to be absolutely no serious consequence. Again, that's what pride does. Pride lies. It lies to us. We believe things that aren't true. And that's why Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, don't be deceived. I really believe that that's why the beginning of that verse is there. Don't be deceived. Because when we're proud, when we're arrogant, we are deceived. We believe things to be true about us and about others that aren't true. Don't be deceived, Paul said. God is not mocked. For whatever a man, inference man or woman, sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we reap if we don't grow. Weary. The laws of the harvest are this. You get what you plant. You ever notice that? Throw orange seeds out. Corn doesn't come up. You get what you plant. Number two, you get it in a different season. That's why I'm not a farmer. It's like last week. I don't have the patience for it. You get what you plant. You get it in a different season. The good thing is, or bad thing, you get more than what you plant. And number four is you can't change this year's harvest, but you can do something about next year. You can't help but wonder, as we come to verse 14, what the walk must have been like when verse 14 says, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. You can't help but wonder as he's walking down that road from his house. You can only speculate that he walked by and saw that 75-foot-tall gallows. And he knew. He knew what the possibilities were. He knew what the options were. And yet, as we'll see next week, he kept walking. Rather than making the decision to change, to repent. If that's you this morning and you're walking down a road and you think, man, I'm getting away with it. I'm doing just what I want to do, living the life. I'm living the American dream. God is just. Payday always comes. We'll see it in a vivid way in chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, I am so very aware myself that it's very easy for me to go daily through life just thinking things are great, things are awesome, things are wonderful. Developing an attitude of pride, an attitude of arrogance, an attitude of I can do what I want to do because I've arrived, I've accomplished, I've done this. And God of chapter 6 teaches us nothing else. It teaches us that you're a just God. That payday always comes. It rarely comes when we're looking for it, but it always comes. God, I pray for my friends that are in this room right now. I don't know every single person that's here. But I can't help but think that there are some men and some women, maybe a high school student, a middle school student that's walked in here, and if they were honest, they know that they portray an attitude that says, I'm getting away with it. It must be okay because there's no consequence. God, I pray that you would use your spirit to impress upon their heart that payday comes. That they wouldn't be deceived that God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he also reaps. And God, rather than being foolish like Haman and simply 
continuing to walk down the road to the king. I pray that you would give us an attitude of humility that we might fall on our faces before a holy, righteous God who at the same time delights in granting mercy and grace. I pray we would recognize our sin, deal with it, and walk with Jesus in a way that brings you honor and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.